One of the most powerful moments in any movie for me was Samwise Gamgee's speech to Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. For those who haven't seen the movies, Frodo and Sam were carrying the great ring of power to Mordor. Over the course of carrying the ring, Frodo was slowly becoming corrupted by it. They were overcoming hardship after hardship. But now that they were so close, all seemed lost. Due to the corruption of the ring, Frodo had just tried to kill Sam. They had been through so much, but in front of them laid all the evils of Middle-earth. Pain and death. Frodo collapses to the ground and tells Sam, I can't do this anymore. To which Sam responds, quote, It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness, must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't, because they were holding on to something. End quote. Now what were they holding on to? Stories. When we struggle, we all hold on to something. For Frodo and Sam, they were holding on to the story in their head where if they destroyed the ring, good would return to the world and wash away all the evil. It was an extremely powerful story, which played in their heads during the hardest of times, and helped Frodo and Sam to defeat the power of the ring and save Middle-earth. Stories are powerful. Eric Barker, author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, gives an amazing example of the power of a story. He puts you in a scenario. Assume you are not a cocaine addict. If he were to put a massive pile of cocaine right in front of you and asked you not to use it, would you use it? Logically, you know it's pleasurable. You know people use it for a reason. But it's probably pretty easy to turn away. You probably come up with tons of reasons why you won't take the cocaine. Maybe you don't want to contribute to the human rights issues that come along with making cocaine. So you play a story in your head of horrible scenes of a cocaine lab. Maybe you don't want to end up addicted to cocaine and on the streets. So you play a story of you on the streets away from your family and friends struggling to get by. These stories make it easy to pass up one of the most tempting and addictive drugs in the world. However, then Eric puts you in another scenario. He says, assuming you're not vegan and you haven't eaten all day, if you were to place a juicy steak right in front of you and asked you not to eat it, how would you fare this time? This scenario might be a little different. You might not have those same powerful stories like you did with cocaine. Without the stories, you'd struggle to not give in to the steak. In all, stories 
make it easier to get through hard times. When you have these stories, you can get through all the evils of Middle Earth or the temptation of cocaine. Like Sam said, folk in the stories had plenty of chances to give in, but they didn't because they were holding on to stories. But what the heck does Lord of the Rings and cocaine have to do with history? Well, Solomon Northup, author of 12 Years a Slave, had to use stories to get him through one of the worst places to be in all of history. Louisiana, in the heat of American slavery. So, how did Solomon get through this harrowing experience? Well, let's dive into Solomon North. Episode 8, The Power of a Story Solomon's story does not start with him being a slave. Instead, he was born to a freed slave and a free woman of color in 1807. In the beginning, his life was pretty normal. He worked as a farmer with his father until 1829 when his father passed away. Shortly after, he married Anne Hampton, who was the absolute love of his life. With her, he had three kids, Elizabeth, Margaret, and Alonzo, in Saratoga Springs, New York. They were the joys of his life. He would write that their voices were music to his ears, and that they filled Anne and his house with gladness. Solomon was as happy as can be. He said that during this time, that he had nothing but the common hopes, loves, and labors of an obscured, colored man. But soon, things would change. In March 1841, Solomon was looking for work, when he came upon two gentlemen named Merrill Brown and Abram Hamilton. They were two men who worked for the circus in New York, and they were impressed with Solomon's experience as a violinist. They offered him a large sum of money to come play in the circus down in New York. Solomon happily said yes, since he thought it would be a quick job and that he would be back in the loving warmth of his home, he neglected to tell his wife before he left. However, the circus never showed up in New York, and Solomon was swindled into going to Washington, D.C., the capital of the free world, to meet up with the circus there. However, in this capital of the free world, owning a human was still legal. So going to Washington, D.C. was still extremely dangerous for a colored man. His new so-called friends put on quite a show to gain Solomon's trust and to convince him to come. They worried about little details like making sure he had his freedom papers and showing Solomon every kindness imaginable. So trusting his new friends, Solomon agreed to venture into slave territory. Once in Washington, he was once again blinded by Merrill and Abram's kindness. There, they took him around Washington, showing Solomon all the points of interest, but also stopping at many saloons where they shared drinks together. Later that night, 
Solomon started to experience strange symptoms. Food made him nauseous. His head had a dull but rising pain. And no amount of water could quench his unending thirst. Nevertheless, he somehow manages to fall asleep. Until, in the dark of night, strange men told Solomon he needed medical attention urgently. Believing it was Merrill and Abram, he got out of bed and followed them to what he believed was a doctor's office. Then, his next memory was darkness in heavy chains. This begins Solomon's 12-year ordeal through hell. It all started in this dank cell. The first person Solomon would see emerge from the darkness was James H. Birch. James was a notorious slave dealer in Washington. When Solomon told James that James had made a bad mistake and that Solomon was indeed a free man, Solomon was met with a heavy wooden paddle. When again he tried to inform James of his mistake, however this time he was met with the cat o' nine tails, which was a cruel and inhumane whip with nine ends. With both these beatings, Solomon realized his temps were folly. From now on, he would rarely tell anyone of his dangerous secret. He was kept in James' slave pen for a few more days. He was dejected. Hope seemed to be fleeting. All his thoughts revolved around Anne and his children. When he slept, his mind dreamed of them, back together in Saratoga. The children running around the house, filling it up with joy. Yet, when he awoke, he was back in reality of the dark cell. But Solomon wrote that during this time, his spirit was not yet broken, because he indulged in thinking about escape and his family. Just like you wouldn't take that cocaine because of the story ruining your life, Solomon would not give in to this dark, dank cell because of the story of him being with his family again. He was beginning to play a story which would help him through the most difficult times of his life. And within a few days, Solomon was on his way to a slave's nightmare, Louisiana. A slave's life on these plantations was nightmarish, as we will soon see. His first stop was New Orleans, where he was put up for sale in Theophilus Freeman's slave pen. Here, Solomon would get a further taste of the horrors of slavery. One of Solomon's friends who he had met on this perilous journey was Eliza. Eliza had two children named Randall and Emily, whom she loved dearly. While there was not much interest in Solomon, Randall had caught the eye of one potential buyer. Randall was running and jumping for a prospective buyer, while Eliza wailed in the background, knowing that if her son was bought, this might be the last time she ever sees him. Eventually, the man ended up purchasing Randall, and while he was negotiating a price with Freeman, Eliza begged that the man buy her and Emily too, so the family would not be separated. However, her cries fell on deaf ears. Randall's last words to his mother were, Don't cry, Mama. I will be a good boy. Don't cry. 
Solomon was deeply shaken by the event since he himself was a father. Eliza's woes were not yet over, though. Soon, like Randall, Solomon and Eliza were being inspected. They were eventually bought, but Emily, Eliza's last child, was not bought with them. And once again, Eliza was in agony. She rushed to Emily, embracing her for one last time, until Freeman struck her away from Emily. Eliza would continue to wail and wail, but this time it seemed her cries were heard. The man who was purchasing them stepped forward to ask to buy the child too. Eliza's mood brightened, but it was soon shut out when Freeman immediately refused to sell Emily. Once again, Eliza clung to Emily, the hope of her world, until Eliza was dragged out the door to the sound of her daughter saying, Don't leave me, Mama. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. Come back. Eliza would never see Randall or Emily again. Emotionally, these moments scarred Solomon. As a father, his heart was absolutely wrenched. He probably couldn't help but put himself in Eliza's shoes. I mean, what if your loved ones were ripped away from you, never to be seen again? But this was just the beginning of the heartbreaking moments Solomon would witness. But luckily, Solomon's first master was a kind man. His name was William Ford, and according to Solomon, quote, There is never a more kind, noble, candid Christian man than William Ford. End quote. In fact, Solomon enjoyed Ford so much that he built him a more efficient way to transport lumber for Ford. However, soon Solomon would fall from Ford's plantation into the possession of Tibbetts. Tibbetts was a devil. He was an angry man who would fly off the handle for any reason. One day, he was enraged at Solomon and was about to whip him for no reason. However, just as Tibbetts' arm was coming down to whip Solomon, he grabbed him by the collar, and in a fit of rage, Solomon soon had Tibbetts on the ground, completely powerless. Like a hammer pounding on an anvil, Solomon's fist hit Tibbetts. Then, Tibbetts kicked away, and they stood staring at each other with hateful gazes. The overseer on the plantation soon sorted out the mess and saved Solomon's life. But this wouldn't be the last time Tibbetts and Solomon fought. One morning, after telling Solomon to do a task, Tibbetts became enraged when Solomon completed said task. As Tibbetts clung on to that thought of hate and despair, he grabbed a hatchet and turned to Solomon. He darted towards Solomon, saying that he would split his head open. In a moment of fight or flight, Solomon charged towards Tibbetts before Tibbetts could lift his arm to land the crushing blow. With one quick movement, Solomon grabbed the arm with the hatchet with one hand and coiled his other hand around Tibbetts' throat. For a moment, he stared into Tibbetts' enraged eyes. Solomon wrote that it was like staring into the eyes of a viper. But then, 
as Solomon writes, quote, The good genius which thus far through life has saved me from the hands of violence at that moment suggested a lucky thought. That lucky thought was not to strangle Tibbets. Since if he killed him, Solomon would certainly be a dead man. That lucky thought stemmed from Solomon's story. A story of a father who just wanted to get back to his family. A man who just wanted to taste freedom again. And that as Solomon peered into the viper's eyes, he played those stories. And those stories showed him that this wasn't Solomon. This wouldn't get him back to his family. Those stories stopped him from giving in to the murderous temptation. That same story of life, family, and freedom told Solomon to flee. He sprinted with all his strength to the desolate swamps of Louisiana. The next few hours would be some of the most dangerous of Solomon's life. The swamps were filled with deadly snakes, alligators, and other lurking creatures. Solomon could hear the dogs chasing after him. Suddenly, to his relief and horror, he came upon a great bayou. It was great because now he could lose the chasing dogs, but terrible because it was infested with scaly monsters. Solomon wrote that his entire time in the water, reptiles surrounded him. Once out of the water, there were still more lurking dangers. Under every log, deadly moccasins waited. No amount of powerful stories could save Solomon from the venomous bite of a moccasin. Solomon said that sometimes he would actually step or place his hand on one. In addition to the snakes, he would almost trample right into camouflaged alligators, to which he would have to suddenly sprint while turning since alligators can run straight quickly but can't turn with speed. As he marched his way through the slithery, slimy muck, he devised a system of crossing pools of water. First, Solomon would hit it with a stick. The water became alive with scales and slithery monsters. He would find another way around. Once away from the dogs and in relative safety from the creatures of the swamp, he decided to make his way to Ford's plantation, where he would be relatively safe. So one pool of water at a time, he made his way north. And eventually, he found himself safe at Ford's, where Ford and his family welcomed Solomon with open arms. So with the power of the story, Solomon had survived the trials of Tibbets and the swamps. A few days after, though, Ford returned Solomon to Tibbets. Ford lectured Tibbets on how one should treat a slave, and after it seemed Tibbets had listened, he left. Luckily, Solomon had rarely any other encounters with Tibbets, and was soon traded to a man named Edwin Epps. Finally, for Solomon, it seemed that he escaped a hateful master. However, Epps proved to be more difficult and hateful than Tibbets. Epps was a drunk. When he was in his cups, his favorite activities were dancing with the slaves and whipping them just for the pleasure of hearing them screech and scream as the great welts were planted on their backs. 
Epps would be Solomon's last and final trial of his enslavement. But luckily, Solomon was not a good cotton picker, so Epps rented him out to nearby sugarcane plantations. During this time, Solomon became a driver. Drivers' jobs were terrible. They were in charge of whipping the gangs of cotton pickers. Solomon would attempt to help out his friends by appearing to whip them while not actually whipping them, or softly whipping them if Epps wasn't present. However, if Epps was present, Solomon had to whip his own friends with full force. One day, while performing his duties as a driver, Epps drunkenly attempted to call over one of Solomon's friends, Patsy, who Epps particularly enjoyed sexually abusing. Solomon attempts to help Patsy by telling her to ignore Epps. However, this infuriates Epps. He storms his way over to Solomon, belittling him, then grabs Solomon by the collar and pulls out a knife, saying that he'll cut Solomon's black throat right open. When Solomon realized Epps was not joking, fight or flight took over. But since Solomon had dodged the quick moccasins of the bayou, a drunken Epps was an easy task. A cycle of Epps drunkenly stumbling after Solomon until he ran out of breath where he would take a break and then resume his drunken chase occurred. All this continued until Epps' wife saw what was happening and put an end to it. Shortly after this encounter, Solomon saw his chance to be free. There was a poor white worker who Epps hired on to work with the slaves. His name was Armsby. Unlike Solomon, Armsby could go to the nearby town where the post office was. Solomon planned to befriend Armsby and have him mail a letter to Solomon's friends up north with his situation and whereabouts. With some spare money saved from playing the fiddle, Solomon begged Armsby to mail this letter for him. His hopes soared high. The story of escaping to his family probably played over and over in his head. Like a dream, Solomon could almost taste freedom. Until Armsby shattered it in an act of betrayal. One night, Epps burst into Solomon's kitchen, whip in hand. Epps started hurling accusations and was ready to unleash all his fury onto Solomon for such an act. But then, Solomon thought on his feet. He started giving Epps excuses for why it couldn't be him, that he couldn't read or write and had no paper. Then, in a stroke of genius, Solomon fed Epps a story about how this was just how Armsby wanted to get Epps to promote him to overseer of the plantation, that all of this was just a setup. Eventually, Epps bit into Solomon's lie. He stormed out of the cabin to chase Armsby off the plantation. But Solomon was crushed. He thought he was so close to freedom, but instead, he was ten steps back. He wrote that hope sprang up in my heart only to be crushed and blighted. In that quote, The hope of rescue was the only light that cast a ray of comfort on my heart that was now flickering, faint and low. Another breath of disappointment would extinguish it altogether, leaving me to grope in the midnight darkness to the end of life. End quote. 
Solomon's story of him escaping to be with his family and friends was fading. It was about to be extinguished, and with it gone, he would succumb to death in the satanic swamps. A few years go by, and again, Solomon must endure the cruelty of Master Epps. In the tenth year of Solomon's nightmare, a sliver of light sneaks in. In a crew of carpenters which Epps hires, there is a Canadian man named Bass. Bass was an abolitionist who was extremely outspoken against slavery. Solomon feels he can trust the man and opens up to Bass about his journey so far. He tells Bass of the story that's gotten him through such hardships. The story of his family. Solomon wrote, quote, I spoke of my wife and children, mentioning their names and ages, and dwelling upon the unspeakable happiness it would be to clasp them to my heart once more before I died. End quote. Then, like Armsby, Solomon asked Bass to mail a letter to Solomon's friends up north. Bass is invigorated and promises to do whatever he can for Solomon. But months go by after Bass mailed the letter, and there is no response. Day by day, Solomon is disheartened by the lack of news. Bass would soon be finishing up his job on Epps' plantation, and when he left, so would Solomon's hope. But Bass didn't give up on Solomon. He promised to return around Christmas to check on him and hopefully bring news. But Christmas comes and goes, and there is no word from Solomon's friends. Bass this time promises to go to New York himself and find Solomon's friends. So once again, Solomon must endure the seemingly never-ending nightmare alone. Until one day, while picking cotton, two unfamiliar white men approached Solomon. And as Solomon looked at them, he realized one of them was his friend, Henry Northup. And finally, it was over. The men demanded Epps to turn over Solomon, stating that he was a free man. Solomon was filled with emotion. Thoughts of his wife, Anne, and children, Elizabeth, Margaret, and Alonzo, flooded through his mind. It was over. Solomon had survived the worst 12 years a person could go through. After a few legal proceedings, he would be back with his family. All because of his story. From the time he was in chains to the time with Bass, Solomon kept playing his powerful story of freedom and his family to resist the temptation of giving in to slavery in that midnight darkness. As leaders and human beings, whenever we go through hardships, we must utilize stories to get us through them. Whether it's a story to get you and your team through a rough time at work and you just want to call it quits, have a story to get you through it. Think about how you're doing this ride for your loved ones or to accomplish your goals. Or if it's something personal like a diet you're on, when that temptation of ice cream or that juicy steak comes on, play that story of how this diet will improve your health and how your life will be better because of it. It'll make saying no that much easier. When the temptation of giving in to death came for Solomon, 
it was easy for him to ignore it because he knew he had to clasp his family to his heart once more before he died. So I challenge you all, next time you face adversity, find a story to help you fight through it.